we began studying through the Old Testament way back in about 2012, I think it was, and uh, we studied through the historical books, Job, uh, one of the, the wisdom books, Skip, Psalms and Proverbs, and the major prophets, and we went to the minor prophets, went through those, and tonight we're going to go back and pick up the uh, smallest of the major prophets, the most minor of the major prophets, because he wrote less than... <laughs> That's the only difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is uh, how much they wrote. And so Daniel is, the, some, some classify him as a major prophet, some classify him as a minor prophet. But, uh, um, what's that? Yeah, oh yeah, and that's one of the things we'll, we'll talk about to, tonight. And, and, it, and it really fits really well with coming off of Lamentations, because in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem lamenting the destruction and Daniel uh, has been taken captive and has been taken into Babylon and so it's the same period of history from two different perspectives uh, almost Daniel is taken into captivity or uh, the beginning of Daniel happens before the destruction of Jerusalem um, but um, you know so the, the timing is uh, these two books go well together, Lamentations and Daniel, so it's kind of a natural, uh, a natural progression. Da Daniel actually, uh, the book of Daniel actually covers all 70 years of the, of the captivity. He is taken captive in 605 B.C., and he uh, continues to minister uh, through the fall of Babylon, and the, the taking over of the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel was working in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then when Babylon fell, he continued to work in the court of uh, Darius and Xerxes, the king of the Medes and the Persians. So that's, that's pretty, pretty interesting, pretty fascinating. He talks about God's, God's sovereignty and having his man in place. And those are all themes that we will, we will talk about. So Daniel... Uh, we'll introduce the book, begin the introduction of the book tonight, and, uh, and then launch into our study of the book of Daniel. Right, are there prayer requests, prayer concerns? Right, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. And, uh, you know, as I was studying, as I was preparing this week, I, one of the resources I had, I read a quote, that although the stories of Daniel are favorites for Sunday school children. Old Testament scholars agree that Daniel is one of the most difficult for preachers. And uh, as I explored that, uh, there was a couple, I think there were about, there's about three reasons that he says that, uh, the, that it's difficult for preachers, three errors that preachers have to guard against. Um, uh, that's in part because half of the book is apocalyptic literature. Uh, literature... Uh, like the book of Revelation, the last half of Daniel is God's revelation of the outworking of his plan 
in the future. And this type of literature, apocalyptic literature, you read through the last part of Daniel and you read through uh, uh, Revelation, you see a lot of similarities that there is highly symbolic language. Um, there is uh, vivid imagery in that apocalyptic literature. And the, the temptation to the preacher is to uh, hyperanalyze those symbols and to try, try to find uh, meaning for every single little detail and try to speculate on uh, what they all mean and apply it to, uh, uh, to, to current day circumstances and try to predict the date of the end of the world. And uh, several preachers have succumbed to that temptation. Y'all remember Harold Camping a few years back who... Uh, you know, said that the end of the world would be in, uh, in March 2012, and when it didn't happen, he said, oh, no, I just miscalculated, it's October 2012. Well, here we are, <laughs> 2022, and uh, Harold Camping was wrong. You remember Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, 88 reasons why the world will end in 1988. Um, and, and so preachers have succumbed to that temptation to hyperanalyze all of the details and try to set the the date, and uh, I had a conversation with a guy yesterday uh, who, uh, who was asking about symbols in the book of Revelation, and he said, and, and, uh, and I told him, I said, well, you know, uh, uh, we, we've got to be cautious with that because of the words of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, about the day and the hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And this guy said, yeah, we can't know the day or the hour, but we can know the season. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and I said, well, in my opinion, the last days began the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, we've been in the last days ever since then. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was a good conversation. I had a good conversation with a fellow yesterday about, about apocalyptic literature. And I told him, I said, you know, a lot of times in apocalyptic literature, we can't get so bogged down in the details that we miss the overall theme. You know, the theme of Revelation is we need to be overcomers and we need to be prepared for spiritual battle and we need to be spiritually strong, spiritually fortified. We need to be watchful and alert and we need to be ready to do battle and we need to be overcomers. You look at the letters in the first two chapter, the second and third chapter of Revelation. How many times do you see the word those who overcome, those who overcome? Those who overcome, we need to be spiritually fortified, spiritually strong, recognize that we're in enemy territory and need to be ready to do spiritual battle. And so when we come to the apocalyptic text, we have to seek to understand the main point. What is the main point of this vision? And a lot of times in that kind of literature, the, the imagery, the details just contribute to the dramatic effect of the vision. And, uh, and sometimes preachers are like, and, and same thing in the parables. A lot of times, you know, when Jesus will tell a parable, he is making one main point. And all of the little details just help the story be for dramatic effect. And we get into trouble if we try to find a parallel to every single aspect that we can easily drift in there. Same thing with apocalyptic literature. We determine the main theme of the vision and we accept that some of those details just might be for dramatic effect and to... To, uh, uh, to, to, to help build the scene of the vision. And, and, uh, and so one of, the, uh, one of the dangers in interpreting Daniel, one of the reasons that it's hard for, uh, for preachers is uh, because 
the last half of the book, verses seven through chapter seven through twelve, are apocalyptic in nature, and they are by their nature difficult to interpret. And when we get to those, we will uh, focus on the main point and not try to find a co corresponding uh, reality for all of the images. Um, and, and so we need to focus on the main point. And the main point of the visions in Daniel is to reassure God's people who are in exile. These visions are given to encourage them to remain faithful, even though they are suffering. Uh, they need to remain faithful. And even in their suffering, God is sovereign. God is in control. And God will be victorious. And God will uh, supernaturally act in human history to establish his kingdom and to bring his suffering, their suffering, to an end. God knows his people are suffering. He cares about that. And he is working out a plan uh, where they will ultimately be vindicated. Their sufferings will be brought to an end. Uh, the final victory belongs to the Ancient of Days and his representative, the Son of Man. The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, will triumph. And the powers and authorities of this world will be destroyed and they will be judged. And God's people will be vindicated and rewarded. The message of the visions in Daniel is that God will rescue his people. He will save them out of their misery and out, and out of their sin from their sin by the work of the Messiah the Son of Man. The God of grace will use his sovereign power to keep his covenant promises forever. And so, uh, so uh, Daniel's a difficult book because half of it is apocalyptic literature, which is difficult to interpret. The challenge there is to focus on the main theme and the message that Daniel is communicating to those initial readers. Now that's chapter 7 through 12, so it'll be a little while before we get there. Um, but there's also interpretive difficulty in chapters 1 through 6. Chapters 1 through 6 describe the lives of the main character, Daniel. And uh, two of the chapters focus on uh, three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, uh, and Azariah. And these last three you might know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and we'll talk about their renaming next week when we look at Nebuchadnezzar's plan and program to take over a nation. And so chapters 1 through 6 are narrative and describe the events of Daniel and his friends. And the challenge to this part is to avoid making these four men the heroes of the story. We have to guard against uh, uh, moralism. We can't let the theme of our sermon be like Daniel. Can't let the theme of our sermon be, be like Daniel. <laughs> we, can't, uh, uh, we can't let the theme of our sermon be dare to be a Daniel and make Daniel the hero of the story. Um, I remember in, in youth group, you know, the message of Daniel was don't eat junk food, don't drink, and don't have sex. I, I know where they got the junk food and drink, but I don't know where they got the other part. But that was, the, <laughs> that was what Daniel was used to, to teach our youth group. And there was this moralism. And so the message should not be, be like Daniel. But the message should be, worship Daniel's God. Walk by faith 
in Daniel's God. Yes, Daniel is faithful, but ultimately God is the one that is sovereign. Daniel is faithful because God provides him the opportunity, the resources, and the deliverance to be faithful. And so Daniel is not the hero of the story. Daniel's God is the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. He is sovereign. We even see that in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of the king of Babylon. And God was not just act, passively sovereign. The text does not say the Lord let Jerusalem fall into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The text says God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And so uh, one of the things we see in the book of Daniel is God's sovereignty. God is in complete control. He is in control even of the suffering of his people. He, is, uh, he raises up kings. He raises up empires. And he is using those kings and empires, empires for the accomplishment of his purpose. But in the end, he will, uh, be, he will bring the world uh, under the control of the Messiah, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, will triumph and the powers and authorities of this world will be destroyed and judged and God's people will be vindicated and rewarded. And so the hero of the story is Daniel's God. So we have to, as we interpret Daniel, we have to guard ourselves from moralism and, uh, and just don't eat junk food, don't drink. Uh, we, we, uh, those, that is not... The message, the message is be faithful, walk by faith in, in uh, Daniel's God. And so we don't want to uh, make Daniel and his friends the hero of the story. Daniel should be studied as a Christian book. And we should seek to integrate the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation and the person and the work and the teaching of Jesus as revealed in the New Testament, as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, flip over, if you would, to, to the book of Hebrews. So as we study the book of Daniel, we need to mo make sure that we integrate the teaching of Daniel with uh, God's perfect and ultimate revelation and uh, the, uh, the person of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 tells us that God at various times in various ways spoke in times past to, to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. And so Hebrews 12, 12.2 uh, tells us that we are to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so uh, the message of, of Daniel is to uh, walk by faith and keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And walking by faith does result in obedience. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in, uh, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, that... Uh, that, that God's people in the Old Testament walked by faith. Verse 33, chapter 11, he, 
who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness, were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life. Right there, when he speaks of stopping the mouths of lions and quenching the fire, uh, certainly those are... uh, references to Daniel. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. And so uh, 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 their obedience, their, their faith in God resulted in obedience and God was pleased to deliver them. Uh, but another, another caution, we should not assume that just because God saved Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the fiery furnace and Daniel from the lion's den, that deliverance is always guaranteed. And so we, we go through Daniel, we have to guard ourselves against the prosperity gospel, against the health and wealth gospel. That you just be faithful and you don't have to worry about the fiery furnace. You just be faithful. You don't have to worry about the, the lions. And, uh, and, and we would be wrong to say that just because God delivered Daniel and just because God delivered Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that he will automatically deliver us. Well, the writer of Hebrews, right in the middle of verse 35, uh, tells us that that is not necessarily true. Yes, there were some who stopped the mouths of lions. There were some who quenched the violence of the fire by faith. Verse 35 tells us, well, others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of earth. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And then he goes into verse 12. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have to guard ourselves from uh, wrongly interpreting the apocalyptic literature. We have to guard ourselves from moralistically interpreting the narratives, making Daniel and his friends the hero of the story, the heroes of the story. And we have to guard ourselves against the prosperity gospel saying, uh, yeah, you can take a stand for God because he's not going to let you be burned up in the furnace. He's not going to let the lions destroy you. Uh, Sometimes uh, there were those who were tortured and those who were in prison, those who were stoned, those who were sawn into, uh, all of that is a part of God's, God's plan. Just because he delivered Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel doesn't guarantee that we will always be delivered. And so uh, um, Daniel does speak of God's deliverance. When Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah were thrown into the furnace, God preserves them so completely that they do not even smell like smoke. 
Even Nebuchadnezzar himself is delivered from insanity and is restored to the throne in his position of glory and majesty. When Daniel's thrown in the lion's den, God sends his angel to shut the lion's mouth. And Daniel's visions at the end speak of God's ultimate deliverance. God will one day rescue his people. He will vindicate them and raise them from the dead and deliver them from the death, the dust. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 and 3 says, Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the, bright, shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so, uh, so there is ultimate vindication, but there may be, not necessarily, there is not always temporary uh, deliverance and rescue. And so we need to uh, remember the main idea. The book of Daniel is written to encourage God's people. Lamentations describes the situation in Jerusalem during the exile. Daniel describes the situation of the exiles in Babylon during the same period. And so, God, being slow to anger, abounding in love, sent prophet after prophet to the sinful people and the rebels in Israel. God sent his prophets to remind the people of what he requires of them. God sent the prophets to remind the people of his judgments and punishments if they do not fulfill their covenant obligations, the obligations under the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. God sent prophet after prophet to warn them that if they did not repent, wrath would come. And the, how did the people respond to the prophets? They did not repent. Jeremiah had no converts. In fact, they tried to shut Jeremiah up. The people did not repent. And God was true to his word. Wrath did come. The northern kingdom, Israel, fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted about 100 years later. And uh, in the... Uh, Third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, laid besiege to it, and we know from history that is 605 B.C. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He laid siege on Jerusalem. And uh, uh, that was just stage one of the exile. And uh, 605... Nebuchadnezzar laid siege. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And this begins phase one. We'll talk more about phase one of, uh, of the siege next week. But uh, tonight we'll just say Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, laid siege and implemented stage one of the exile by deporting young men from noble and royal Judean families. And so 605, he takes young men to change their worldview, take Jewish men to make them see the world like Babylonians, so that when he takes the rest of the nation in, in, in cap, into captivity, he will have Jewish men 
ethnic Jews with a Babylonian worldview to help him subdue the rest of the people. And so if you're going to capture a nation of 1.2 million people, bring them away from their home, and you're going to try to rule over those people, the way to rule over them is to have their own people uh, lead them, but their own people that you have changed who think like you think. And that's, uh, that's what we'll talk about next week, uh, how to take over a country. And so uh, phase one was to take royal and noble young men, and we're talking like 13, 14 years old. Take them away from their families, move them to Babylon, and begin to change their worldview so that you can use them to help subdue the rest of the people that you're going to take captive in phase two and phase three of the exile, all of which we will... uh, And so Daniel begins in 605 B.C. Daniel is one of these young men. And and, and this book covers about 70 years of Daniel's life. So Daniel's taken captive at age 13, serves in Babylon, and then through the Medes and the Persians until he is like 83. And so Daniel lives a very long life and uh, serves in the government of Babylon survived the transition to the rule of the Medes and the Persians. And through those decades, Daniel remains faithful to God. Daniel remained faithful to God in the face of great opposition, at the threat of death. And, uh, and then the book ends with God's promise to establish an everlasting kingdom. And so from Daniel we learn that it is possible to live a faithful life even in exile, even when you're surrounded by enemies, even when you're inundated with pagan influences and pagan propaganda, it is possible to be faithful if you single-mindedly and wholeheartedly set your mind to serve the Lord with an undivided heart With undivided affections, set your heart and mind to serve the Lord. You can be faithful. And so so we look at Daniel and the lesson of, 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 of serving in exile in enemy territory. And you know, uh, uh, as of right now, as of right now, we have the privilege and living in a place where we do not face open, state-sponsored persecution. We live in relative freedom, way more than uh, what Daniel and his friends will experience in Babylon. And so uh, uh, we may see uh, increased state-sponsored opposition to the church, but right now we live in relative freedom. And, uh, and, and in decades past, Christians in America really had a hard time uh, relating to the book of Daniel because we don't live in that kind of persecution. We live in relative freedom. But, but as we study the book of Daniel, we can also be reminded that there are places in our world 
that much more resemble Babylon and God's people living in Babylon. Uh, there are many churches in the world that live under tyranny, oppression, state-sponsored persecution. According to the latest estimates worldwide, there are over 100 million Christians that live under intense persecution. 100 million Christians who live in states that, that openly oppose and try to destroy and shut down the church. And so as we study Daniel, we need to be reminded to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And also, we must, we must remember that even when we live in relative freedom, we are in exile. Ever since God kicked our first ancestors out of the garden, we've been living in exile. <laughs> we have been living in a place where paradise has been lost. We've been living east of Eden. Um, this broken and sinful world is not our home. You know, we might call ourselves citizens of the United States, uh, but really, as Paul reminds us, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter addresses his first letter, 1 Peter, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. James addresses his letter in the New Testament to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And Jesus tells his followers, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so, even when we live in relative freedom, we are living in enemy territory. We might not face the overt state-sponsored persecution that Daniel and his friends face, that 100 million Christians across the world face, but we still suffer the consequences of living east of Eden. We suffer from thorns and thistles, ice storms and tornadoes. We suffer the hatred of Satan, broken relationships, pain, death, violence. And so we can find life-giving hope from Daniel. And as our culture becomes increasingly hostile, we can find the same strength and encouragement that Israel found reading the narratives of Daniel and his friends. So uh, the book begins with the setting. We read the first two verses. In the third year of reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and brought the articles into the treasure of his God. And so the book begins with the setting. The third year of Jehoiakim, uh, 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And God was uh, already angry with Judah. Even before the wicked and godless Jehoiakim became king, he had uh, uh, told uh, Jeremiah, had told the prophets that God was angry with Judah because uh, because of the provocations with which Manasseh provoked him. And God had already resolved to remove Jerusalem from his sight by the time that Jehoiakim took the throne at the age of 25. 
And so uh, that's the setting. Jehoiakim, the wicked king of Judah, in the third year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to it. The book also begins with the sovereignty of God, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and brought his articles into the treasure house of his God. And notice the Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Active sovereignty. It's not passive. It does not say the Lord let Jehoiakim be delivered into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But the Lord gave him. It was an active sovereignty. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And as we will clearly see later in the book, Nebuchadnezzar was also in the hand of God. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar was nothing more than a tool in the hands of God to bring judgment on his people. And so the king of Judah was put into the hands of the king of Babylon, and uh, they were both in the hands of God. And the siege of 605 and the raiding of the temple was only the first phase in Nebuchadnezzar's strategy to take over the country. The temple was raided and valuables were taken out and taken to Babylon. But the temple was not destroyed yet. That will not be till 586 B.C. Um, and so this is phase one. The siege, the, taking, the raiding of the temple and the taking of young men from the noble and royal families of Judah. And so this is phase one. And notice, where does, um, where does Nebuchadnezzar carry the articles from the house of the Lord to what land? Shinar, okay, what is significant about Shinar? The plains of Shinar, Genesis chapter 11. Plains of Shinar, Genesis chapter 11. It was on the plains of Shinar that the people of the earth rebelled against God in an attempt to make a name for themselves. And so they were going to build a city temple that reached up to heaven. That was the plains of Shinar. God told them to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, but in rebellion they came to one plain, the plain of Shinar, to make a name for themselves and to build a, a temple city, a city temple in their idolatry that would reach to heaven and make a name for themselves. And how did God judge those rebels? By, by confusing their languages, and as a result, the place became known as the Tower of Babel. Babel. And who has come and laid siege to Jerusalem? The Babylonians. <laughs> and so, uh, so, uh, um, so, so, Shinar, and, and, the, and the text uses that to take us back to Genesis, to take us back to that, to that judgment. And also because one of the covenant curses 
Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, one of the ways that God promised to judge his people if they did not fulfill their obligations under his covenant at Sinai was that God promised to bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. So the language is confused at Babel. If God's people do not fulfill their covenant obligations, God will send a nation on them whose language they do not understand. And here the covenant curse comes to pass as the Babylonians arrive in Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar, like the rebels in Genesis chapter 11, desires to make a name for himself. He targets the city of Jerusalem, its temple, its treasures, and the people of God to glorify and exalt himself. And the historian, a historian looking at this event, how would a historian probably describe the fall of Jerusalem? The weaker nation was conquered by a nation stronger than itself. The historian might say that Judah fell because it was overpowered by a more powerful nation, the world's great super, superpower, the strongest nation on the earth, the strongest nation that the earth had ever seen to that point. Jerusalem, Judah was just a small city, and this massive army, this massive empire, the world's superpower came and conquered it. So the historian would probably just say the weaker nation fell to the stronger nation. How would the uh, Babylonian priest describe, probably describe the fall of Jerusalem? The one, uh, the articles, the temple of God and of Israel is raided and the gold is taken to the house of his God. So how would the priest in Shinar receiving the gold from the temple of Jerusalem, how would he probably describe my God beat your God. That's right. My God's bigger than your God. The, uh, the priest would, uh, would say, the God, the powerful gods of Babylon, Aku and uh, Marduk and Bel, that we'll meet next week when we talk about the name changes. They overpowered the God of Israel. So the historian would say the greater nation the bigger army won the priest of Babylon would say the biggest God won but what does our text say the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he brought those articles into the treasure house of his God so the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. From the very beginning in the book of Daniel, we see God's sovereignty. Israel's Lord is the sovereign Lord who created all things, who owns all things, and who, who controls all things. And so the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hands. And so we see God's sovereignty. And, you know, sometimes when we 
see the suffering and persecution of God's people, we're tempted to, uh, uh, to lose faith in a sovereign God who loves his people and is in control. If, if God is in control and God is all-powerful and God is all-loving, why do bad things happen to his people? Why do his people suffer? But the book of Daniel helps us to see the sovereignty of God and that he sees the suffering of his people, he cares about the suffering of his people, and he will ultimately use all of that for his glory and for their good, and he will be victorious. And Daniel teaches us that it's possible to live a faithful life in exile. It's possible to live surrounded by pagan influences and propaganda. It's possible to live by faith if you set your heart to serve the Lord. Single-mindedly, undivided heart, serve the Lord and believe that God will save his people. God will give wisdom and insight, but there will be suffering along the way. This world is a place of suffering for God's people, and we can expect it to get worse before it gets better, but we can also know that God rules over the conflict. He has set both the scope of the conflict, the scope of the suffering, and he has set the time. And so we are to be patient and faithful in this present world, looking to the Lord and to the Lord alone for our deliverance. And so the book of Daniel is written as an encouragement to the people in exile. The people of Israel thought exile was the end for them. They'd been driven out of the land. They thought it was the end of their special relationship with God, that God had given them over. But God promised that he had not abandoned them, and he had not abandoned his plan and his purpose for the whole world. And in the book of Daniel, we see that God controls every creature and every event, even the most severe difficulties, and he controls and works all those things to bring about his promises of an everlasting kingdom to be ruled by the Messiah, the Son of Man. And in Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, God ultimately delivers his people from sin and misery, and the Son of Man the Christ will establish a kingdom that rules over all the earth forever and ever and ever. And so Daniel's God is faithful. And the message is not be like Daniel, but the message is to worship and walk by faith in Daniel's God, who is perfectly revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And uh, because of who Jesus is, the Son of God, God the Son, because of what he accomplished, his perfect righteousness and his atoning death and his resurrection, we can know that we can survive in enemy territory and that God will ultimately have the victory. The victory belongs to the Ancient of Days, mediated by his representative, the Son of Man. And that's what we learn in Daniel. So remember the message. Guard against moralism and guard against the prosperity gospel and to uh, recognize that Daniel is a Christian book 
um, pointing to the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus. All right, questions about those first two verses of the book of Daniel? <laughs> All right, next week we'll look at how to take over a country. So Nebuchadnezzar's plan to take over 1.2 million people and to, uh, to rule over them. What? Take them away from their parents and teach them to think like Babylonians. Change their worldview. That's next week. Lord willing. <laughs> All right, any, any comments or thoughts about uh, Daniel? The interpretive challenges? The setting? The main points? More thoughts? right let's pray together lord god we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for what it reveals to us about you that you are in control that we can trust you that you are faithful and even when the circumstances of our life are difficult you are faithful you are worthy of our worship you are worthy of our adoration you're worthy of our trust a trust that can result that should result in obedience And Lord, we thank you that you make it possible for us not just to survive, but to thrive in exile, in enemy territory. That it is possible for us to be faithful even when we're surrounded by pagan influences and pagan propaganda. And when we set our heart and mind on Christ, we experience your peace. and your comfort, and your presence. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us as we live in enemy territory to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And, Lord, we look forward to the day when victory comes through the Ancient of the Days, the Son of Man. And uh, you rescue and vindicate your people, delivering them from their sin and from their misery because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. We look forward to that day. And between now and then, God, we ask that you find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.